0: you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We'll be in, I guess, quite a few places this morning, but I think they're easy to find, so we'll just turn here for now. I want to begin reading in verse 9, read down through the end of the chapter, so if you found it. Let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of our Lord. And after we read, please remain standing and we will sing to the Lord in praise for His Word. Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it stands written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This morning, I wanted us to uh, back up in 12. Um, Felt like I rushed through a lot of things last week. And we, like Jeremy just prayed, spent 11 chapters getting ready for chapter 12. And so I certainly don't want to rush through it. I mean, we're at the center of the pie, and so we really need to savor these words and go slow and understand these are the very things that the Lord has left us to do. These describe for us who we are to be, and I love getting into a section with imperatives like this because it really helps us focus in on what do you do, because you get asked that question. I did in the Northwest a lot. Church was not a part of the culture They had never been, and and so they would ask the question, what do you do there? And so when we begin to talk about imperatives, you can really answer that question pretty clearly because we gather corporately to worship God and to draw close to God as I instruct you in the ways of God. I teach you who He is, what He is like. I teach you about the things that He's done. I teach you about the things that you and I have been commanded to do, and and then we go out having a renewed mind, and we follow in the same path as the Lord has laid out for us. We model His character. We obey His Word. And when we do these things, we really begin to understand this is the will of God for us as the people of God. We literally go out and reflect the character and the person of God among a lost and dying world as we humbly obey the Lord. That's what we do. That's why you came this morning. In case you forgot, I just reminded you. I'm about to get you ready for another week to go out there and reflect the glory of God. I'm about to get you ready to go out and worship. Because I think we've advanced far enough to realize worship is not confined to one hour on Sunday morning. Worship is a way that we live. It describes what we do. And so, if I were to just off the cuff, I'll just do this if you're taking notes. I would want you to just describe what it means to worship the Lord seven days a week. And you begin to think through what that is supposed to look like. I'm convinced that you guys would come up with some of the things that Paul has written for us in verse, or rather in Romans chapter 12. For instance, if you look down in I think it's verse 12, you'll notice the very last phrase, he says, devoted to prayer. See that? So if I were to ask you, or someone were to ask you, what are you talking about, worship the Lord seven days a week? I thought you did that on Sunday morning. You go, no, no, I do it all the time. How do you do that all the time? I think one of the things that you would say is, well, I pray all the day. I mean, I'm constantly murmuring prayers under my breath to the Lord. I'm constantly running into situations where I go, thank you, Lord. I'm constantly running into situations where I'm going, oh, Lord, help, as I walk into the boss's office or, oh, Lord, help, I'm about to deal with that difficult person that I always run into this time of day. And, oh, Lord, help, I'm in Walmart and I look like a mess. And here I go through here and I know I'm going to run into somebody I see. And so I think you'd get that right. Worship involves us constantly being devoted to prayer. But we know it involves more than that. I think you could come up with verse 11, if you'll notice there, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit. And I think you would get that. You, you need to be zealous for God. And we know we struggle with that sometimes. But deep down, we, we understand that to worship the Lord 24-7, you, you got to be zealous. I mean, you got to all be all in as far as your relationship with the Lord goes. And... I hope that your coworkers know exactly where you are this morning. I hope that they know exactly about the particular jokes that they can tell you on Monday morning. I hope they know exactly about the things that you'll talk about and the things that you won't talk about. And I hope they know exactly what you'll do with them on Friday night and what you won't do with them on Friday night. Because you're zealous for the Lord. But I think the part that we might not get when we talk about worship being 24-7 is how we handle other people, period, across the board. Because Paul is going to lay down some very difficult things for us, speaking specifically of relationships with three groups of people. One of those you might get, and that's how we relate to one another in this church If you want to worship seven days a week, there is a particular way that you're supposed to treat people in the body of Christ. And I know I've told you this story before. Uh, This hit me like never before. My first mission trip, I had left my children behind for the very first time, got on a plane, flew to Mexico, drove for hours on end, showed up at somebody's house who was a pastor who didn't speak one drop of English sometime around 1 or 2 a.m., He's waiting up in the kitchen with his wife, and so just a handful of us men walk into the kitchen. He grabs all of our hands and goes to pray. And I realized that this is my long-lost brother I've never met, and he's calling out to God on my behalf. And I really took hold of what it means for me to understand how to treat my brothers and sisters in Christ in that moment, and it's grown since that day. But that's not the only way we define worship because we've got to treat those people out in the world a particular way. And he'll get into this as far as it's concerned with you. Be at peace with all men. Let me get my glasses on. He says somewhere down in verse 18. And so we'll see that, you know, it's not just how we treat church family. It's also how we treat people outside of church. If we want to worship God 24-7, there is a particular way that we have to treat those people as well. We're going to be held accountable for that. And then the last group is the worst, because it's the most difficult. How do we treat our enemies? We're going to have enemies. Jesus is very clear. The world hated Him. If it hated Him, it's going to hate us. So there's going to be people that are absolutely committed to undermining us despising us, contradicting us, laughing at us, and trying very hard to make it difficult for us. And there is a particular way that we are to treat them as well. And we'll eventually get there down in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. And he's not just talking about food and water. He's saying, meet their needs. Man, if you can see that your enemy has a need in their life, don't hesitate. I don't care what it is. You're supposed to do that. And we remember the gospel in that because that's exactly who we were when Christ met our need. We were enemies of the Son of God. And so we understand that worship involves a great deal. And there's a great deal that we've got to learn. Great deal that we've got to learn. So I wanted to pump the brakes as we go through this, but hopefully you can already see the desperate need for a transformed mind. I'm telling you, if we don't learn to think differently, we will dismiss these things so quickly, especially when we get into dealing with people we don't like. People that really don't like us. And if you're not thinking like Christ, you will not handle that right. You will handle that just like everybody else handles that because there's a way that the world handles, handle, handles those situations and they go right back at them. And God says, no, 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 you can't do that because you're a child of God. So we're talking about worship. We will be talking about worship for weeks ahead, but we're coming to the foundation of worship, the attitude of worship, if you will, and that is love. And that's where I'm going to sit down mostly this morning. But you've got to understand, you, you've got a wrong definition about that. You were born with a wrong definition about that. And you've been developed in wrong thinking about, the love because, about love because we've been conformed to the way that the world loves. If you want to describe the world's love in two words, it's because of. The world always loves because of. But God's love can also be reduced down to two words, and His is in spite of. God's love is in spite of, and it's a radically different love. But even the word itself, y'all, we've been conformed into using it so flippantly and carelessly. I love steak. What a bizarre thing to say. That has nothing to do with love whatsoever. I love fishing. Why would you say that in the context of fishing? Because when you study love in the Bible, or even if the world understands love between a husband and a wife, that seems very bizarre. So we've used this particular word in very careless ways, and we need to be careful in using them careless ways, because that communicates something. I don't love fishing. I enjoy it. But my goodness, I don't love it. And my favorite thing to eat is actually steak and seafood. I guess together would be like the top of the mountain for me. But I don't love it. I really enjoy those things. So we've got to be careful how we use these words, but I think you can understand it best if I give you a couple examples of how we're wrong. Because we naturally, and, and you should, love babies. Y'all, y'all know I, I really do. I love babies. I prayed for y'all to have babies but you do realize that we love babies because it's a baby. In other words, the state the child is in causes the response of love. It's innocent, it's beautiful, it's cute, it's cuddly. You just want to hold it. Therefore, we love it. You see, you still haven't reached the level of God's love because you're simply responding to the state that that little human being's in. And you go, well, I just love it. Why do you love it? Oh, it's a baby. And you go, oh, I get that. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that love. It's just an immature love. It's not a Christian love. It's an underdeveloped love. It's a response to, it's a because of love. I'll give you another example. Some of your young boys will be experiencing soon enough, I just love that girl. Why? Why? My son was up here. His first words were, well, she's got blonde hair, Dad. She's so pretty. She's the prettiest thing I've ever seen in my life, was John's words. That's okay. But that's not God's love. That's because of love. And wives, I hate to tell you this, but your husband first loved you for very immature reasons. He saw you and fell, literally, in love with you. And that's an okay love, but still we're in the realm of worldly love and we're not in the realm of godly love. The reason you love her, son, is because of her. And that love continues to grow as you get to know her, but you need to understand how it started. It started with one of the most immature reasons And it will not last because it's because of what she looks like, what she sounds like, how she treats you. You see, if she treated you differently, I don't think you would love her. If she dyed her hair green, I think your love might wane a little bit, fall off, you know? So we got to understand, I'm about to lay a foundation for you that you've got to understand we've got two definitions here. and One of them you're going to have to throw away and you're going to have to pick up the other one and let it change how you think. This has got to transform your thinking. Because if you don't change it, you're wrong. Because you have been conformed into the image of the world's thinking about love. Look at verse 9 with me. If you have the NASB, you'll notice there's some italics here. The NASB says, let love be without hypocrisy. And I think the ESV says, let love be genuine. Is that what it says? But hopefully in both your translations or in all your translations, let and be are in italics because there's no verb here. Literally, this is just a subtitle for the section that's about to flow out. It is an article, the... It is the word agape or agape, which we understand is the love of God. And by the way, I found out this week if this was not agape or agape is not a not so much of a familiar word for them in the first century. They'd be like, well, "I don't use that word a lot." Well, I'm glad you don't use that word a lot because Paul's like, "I'm using a word that describes God's love. It's not like earthly love or worldly love. This is a unique love." So you've got the article there, the love. And then you've got this adjective that describes it. And if the NASB, you have the without that simply defines one letter, the alpha privative, which negates hypocrisy. The love, not hypocritical. And so the ESV just changes it. Let love be genuine. Now, I'll tell you, this would really smack the people that Paul was speaking to because they really got this. You and I don't get this. Our politicians, man, have led us and demonstrate for us the age in which we live. Hypocrisy means nothing anymore. You can be a hypocrite and people will still vote for you. You can be a liar. You can be worthless. You can be useless. It doesn't matter because we live in the age of post-truth. Truth no longer matters, therefore hypocrisy is not that big of a deal. Lying is a regular part of our culture now, and it's a part of so many other cultures. Lying is just an accepted thing. And we'll watch a particular news station knowing that they're lying through their teeth, and they're twisting this story. And this man is... Uh, yeah, I won't get into examples. There's a lot with our current president, right? But it just doesn't matter anymore because everybody's doing it. So when Paul says, This love that I'm about to call you to and describe in detail is genuine, it's unhypocritical, it really popped for them because it was an illustration that took place in Roman plays. Because when Romans had plays, they would wear a mask to help you see who they were portraying in the play. Little mask. I'm being robbed today. I've got a mask that looks like Rob. And so you would understand that the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm doing, this mask tells you who I am trying to portray. And Paul's like, no, if you want to know what love is, you've got to see the person behind the mask. You've got to see who's hiding behind the mask. And so to help you understand between these two different kinds of love, you've got a superficial love. It's your mask, and it's always a response to or a because of something going on with somebody else. But Christians are called to lay down the mask and love genuinely because of who you are, not because of what somebody else is doing or who somebody else is. You understand that? This is not a masked thing, this is a genuine thing. This is from the heart. And so this should really begin to help us shape out this form of love before I get into describing in detail in the text. Because do you remember 1 John 4, 8? The world loves this definition of of God. It's the world's favorite definition of God. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. They love that. It gives them the warm fuzzies. But what they're doing is they're understanding God with their own definition. And you can't do that. Now, God is love. The essence, the fullness of love can only be understood in God. In fact, I go so far to say is you can't understand what real love is without the mask unless you have a relationship with God because God is love. It's His nature. It's His character. It's His essence. It's His being. And we can only understand love if we have a relationship with God because God is love. You see how I get there? But at the same time, God is also holy. Now, I do know you have a grasp of that very clearly. The world doesn't like that because if God's holy, He's got to do something about unholiness or sin, and and He does, right? But so we take these two defining characteristics of God. God is love and God is holy. And then we begin to understand you can't separate those things because you can't separate God. God is love. God is holy. Therefore, love is moral. And that's why in the text, if you look with me in Romans 12, verse 9, you've got the love, you've got one word there, hypocrisy, and then what's the very next word? Abhor. He literally separated love from an intensified form of the word hate. It's got a prefix in an oppo, which intensifies it. This is a white knuckled hatred that is literally one word away from the word love. And you're like, how can love and hate be in the same sentence? Well, because we're talking about God. That's how. Because God hates evil. You see, we've got, we've got some things to understand and we've got, some, we've got some ways in our thinking that desperately need to change, right? But I want you to know before I get into it, and I've about said all I'm going to say is, one more thing. I want you to see that we're never going to get away from love until we, we finish out this section verse 9 you've got the start the subtitle over everything else let love be without hypocrisy look at verse 10 be devoted to one another in brotherly what love look down in chapter 13 verse 8 he still hasn't left it by the time we got all the way to chapter 13 verse 8 look what paul writes in 13:8 oh nothing This is your only debt, by the way, as a Christian. Owe nothing to anyone except love one another. You owe that. You're always in debt to that. And by the time we get here, he's not just talking about Christians. He's talking about human beings. He said that you're indebted and you'll never get out of debt. Owe nothing to anyone except love. For he who loves his neighbor, he goes on to say, has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the very fulfillment of the law. So we can back all the way up and go once we get a transformed mind, you know what we're going to do? We're going to love. Once we've entered into this realm of worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know what you're going to do? You're going to love. Once you come to the altar in Romans 12:1 and offer that spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God, you know what that looks like? A person who loves. We're never going to get away from love. In fact, Isn't it amazing that our Lord says, well, that's just how you sum up the Ten Commandments. One word, love. But again, I'll take you to the problem. Your way of thinking and my way of thinking about love is wrong. Simply because it is in response to what someone else is doing, what they're saying, or who they are. In God's life, that has nothing to do with love. You see, love resides in me. I am love, God would say. Therefore, as Christians, as I begin to describe these things, what God is trying to do is change you to where love resides in you. And it doesn't matter who somebody else is. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. They're not going to change you because you're love. See how this works? Now, will we ever get there? Not 100%. When you die, you get there. When you stand before the Lord, you'll get there. But we're not going to be lazy now. We're going to walk in that direction now. We're going to run in that direction now. We're going to turn away from those things that are wrong. We're going to turn into those things that are right. And this is the thing. If I could just reduce it down to one thing. This is the thing we're going to do now. We're going to let love define who we are. Therefore, it's never a response. It's just the essence of who we are as the children of God. Therefore, everything we do is an expression of love. It's an expression of worship. And it comes forth from a changed mind. Now, to understand it to its fullest extent, we've seen it before. It's not like we don't know what it is, and it's not like the world doesn't know what it is. The world has examined true love, right? God did that for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He, what? Gave. He gave His only Son. That church is the very essence of the definition of this kind of love. And we talk about this pretty often. It is absolutely sacrificial. It is absolutely selfless. And it is absolutely in given to serve others. That is God's kind of love. And when Jesus died on Calvary, when the Son of God was lifted up, all men saw love in its fullness for the very first time. There has never been nor will there ever be a greater demonstration of love than the day that Jesus died on that cross. And you've got to understand the context. You see, the context was necessary. It was absolutely necessary that the world be swallowed up into sin in order to see this love. It was absolutely necessary that the world be in darkness in order to see this light. Because God made it so dark in order that this light might shine so bright and we would see the love of God when Jesus breathed His last on our behalf. So we've seen it. We've got no excuse for this. We did not have to conform to the world's way of thinking about this love because we had the example written down. We saw God love us. And therefore we know exactly what love looks like. And when we get married, we're commanded, and I've said this every time I perform a ceremony, We're commanded to demonstrate that cross kind of love. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And did what, Rob? Gave Himself up for her. So guys, we started out with, Oh, I love her because of. Because of this and because of that. And then you stood before a preacher one day and he, saw, he, he, he said those words and then you realized, whoa, I got a long way to go. I got a long way to go because I've got to model the love of my Lord and Savior. And I've got to give myself. And, and guys, just let me harp on you for just a second because you know I never like to miss an opportunity. We give ourselves to so many things. But there's only one thing God has told us to give ourselves to in order to glorify His gospel. And that's your bride. So we've seen it, right? We have clearly seen the love of God. But you need to know, we, God's done more for the church than simply seeing it. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Please keep your place in Romans. We'll be right back. Go to the right, just a few pages. First and 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 3. And I want you to settle in on verse 14. And I want you to hear the the Apostle Paul's prayer for us. We've examined love at Calvary, but we've been empowered to love by the gospel. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, for this reason I bow my knees. Paul's like, I'm going to lay into prayer for you. And I'm going to do it before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He, church, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be, notice, strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, through the cross, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And he relates the fullness of God with what? Love. So Paul's like, I'm, I'm on my knees before the Father because you need to know that you've been empowered through the work of the Holy Spirit in the inner man to do the very things that God has done to you, to love you in an immeasurable way. You can't plumb the depth. You can't measure the height, the breadth, the width. You you can't even comprehend how grand and glorious it is, but you've been empowered to the same thing. So when I tell you when your enemy's hungry, feed him, you should never go, I can't do that. What in the world do you mean? Through the gospel, you've been empowered through the indwelling Holy Spirit to do the very thing that God has called us to do. So we've seen it. We've been empowered to it. But the last thing is we've been exhorted, commanded, if you will, to love. If you go back to Romans 12, let me read you the exhortations and then then we'll talk about the definition. Let me give you just a few of these exhortations to love. One of them I've already touched on, but I love Mark 12, and I'll read it to you. If you're taking notes, it begins in verse 28. And it says this, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them all well. These religious leaders in Jesus were arguing. This scribe says, Jesus, what commandment out of the ten is the foremost of all? And, of course, you know Jesus' answer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater commandments than these. Love. Jesus said, again, that, that's it. You want to sum up the entire Old Testament law? Well, you can with one word, love. Jesus says this in John 13. This I hope you have memorized. If not, you need to memorize verses 34 and 35. Jesus says in the New Testament, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is the distinguishing mark. It is the singular mark that helps people understand who we are as followers of Christ. Love does that. In other words, if you're the kind of person who doesn't talk about your Christian faith very much at work, it doesn't mean they don't already know because they've watched you love. Not in response, but just as a defining mark of who you are as a person. So much so, they ought to be able to pull you off to the side and go, you're a follower of Christ, aren't you? And you go, I am. And they go, I knew it. I've watched you love. I, I just, I don't see how you do that. You see, that's what sets us apart. This is the thing that defines us. In fact, John will say in 1 John 3, listen to these words. John uses it as a measuring tool. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. John was like, I'll tell you if your faith's genuine or not, and I don't even have to ask your grandmother. Do you love? And if you love like the Lord, you've been born again. There's, there's just no doubt about it for John. But if there's still people that you don't love, and, and you, you, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You failed one of the tests to determine whether or not you've been born again. So we're talking about very important issues. But let's look at it now, at how Paul lays it out. And now we don't have to go so slow, but go back to Romans 12 and look at the second half of verse 9. Again, it's the... Heading over all these things. Let me get back to it. No verb here. Just simply says let love be or the love unhypocritical. And then he comes to the first defining characteristic of love. Hate what is evil. So let me tell you where mine and your love falls short. We don't hate enough. Therefore, our love is short. We don't hate evil enough. We, we don't hate sin enough. I'm telling you, this word is absolutely passionate as the next word that I'll show you in just a second. But there has to be an absolutely strong distaste. You know, some cultures, and I look this up, they spit on the ground when you say something that's so distasteful to them. They just hawk and spit. They don't even want that in their mouth. Pretty cool. That's how we should think about sin. When you when you think about abortion, you got to get a scowl on your face. There's no way, no how, for any reason that's okay under any circumstance. You you should absolutely struggle to control your hatred for such a wicked thing. Another A word, adultery. Hate it. Absolutely hate it. We've all seen firsthand what that does. And we ought to despise it in our very being. And the more we learn to hate it, the more loving we will be. And that goes for any sexual immorality. We're seeing so many weak-kneed, spineless pastors rolling over on sexually immoral issues, homosexuality and gender identity, and they're just trying to be accepting and they don't understand. The more that you accept it, the less that you love. Don't get soft on sexual immoral issues because if you do, you're being weakened in love. You so, Pastor, is it a good time to say we hate the sin and love the sinner? Yes. But at the same time, you've got to understand God doesn't cast sins in hell. You better be passionate about this. You better be overwhelmingly passionate about this. And the more that you hate that, the more that you will love like the Lord because Jesus died for sin and you can't separate these two things. If you want to let your love loose, you will have a growing hatred for sin, not a growing acceptance for it. And I realize in our day how hard that is, but that's the truth of the text. Genuine love hates sin. You cannot separate love and hatred of sin. But at the same time, look at the second part of verse 9. You cannot separate, and it's an equally emphatic word, cling to what is good. And the word cling is literally to glue yourself inseparably to what is good. You find what is good and you, you lay into it if you want to love like the Lord. You find good things. You find good things to do. There's so many good things. Listen to these passages. The Bible is absolutely filled with doing good. 3 John, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good, you see. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has never even seen God. Hebrews 13, do not neglect doing good. Titus 3, our people must learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. This is the love of God. I figured out what's good and that's all I'm doing. I figured out in my life what is truly good and I've laid hold of that with my life and that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about the doing of good. In the sight of all men, I do good. Because I don't care who they are. If they have a need, I, I meet that. I will do good because I've laid hold of that. But it's not just the doing of good that we need to lay hold to. It's the being of good. If you've got your Bibles, you're just a page or two away from it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. We read this at weddings. I don't know. I guess it can fit there. But it really fits here in the church. Because if we're going to love like God, this is something that we desperately need to glue ourselves to. Look at verse 4. Let me give you the goodness that we need to cling to. Love is patient. How about gluing yourself to that? I know nobody in here struggles with impatience. I know all of y'all got that nailed down. But let me tell you something. The love of God has glued itself to being patient. Let me go through the list quickly. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is never provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. How about gluing yourself to that? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love always rejoices in truth. You see, you can't untie love and holiness. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. That's things that we need to glue ourselves to. That's God's love. And if we're going to cling to what is good, we will certainly cling to those things. So Paul's very first definition is, you need to understand about this love that I'm calling you to, it's tied to morality. It has an ethical nature to it. It hates evil. But man, it's just head over heels in love with good. That's the love of God. Let me give you a few more here. Look look with me in verse 10. Be devoted... This is, again, love that's unhypocritical. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I told you last week, and I've told you a number of times, you, you guys have bought into this. And I really appreciate that. In fact, you've bought into the word, you mean brother. I think it was probably, I don't know, 12 years ago now, where I met... Steve McDougall, actually it's been longer than that, but somewhere in between 12 and 13 years, he referred to me as brother one day. Made my heart stop. It's the most affectionate way that I've ever been referred to by another man of Christ in my life. And people have referred to me as bro and brother and all that, you know how we do. We do that in our culture all the time. We call each other that. And that had never meant anything to me, but when he said that for the first time, it meant something to my soul. And to this day, he and I, when we hug, we say, I love you, brother. He's helped me understand what the church is supposed to look like. We are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you men call each other brother, my heart sings because I'm thinking in my heart, they're really getting this. They're really beginning to understand what it means to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I, I do want you to see this, I really do. Turn over to 1 Timothy. I'll be back to Romans 12 in a second, but turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want you to be able to find this verse quickly. Especially when anybody's talking about the church, because we've so left behind what the church is supposed to look like. We do everything in the world to make it look like a business or a ministry, and it's not at all. Notice 1 Timothy five. Look at verse one. Do not sharply rebuke uh, what an older man, but rather appeal to him as a what's the word father. To the younger men, as what? Brothers. The older women, how are we to appeal to them? Mothers. And the younger women, as what? Sisters. Now, 1 Timothy is about the church. Paul's telling Timothy, these are the things that constitute, define, help us understand the church. The whole letter's about that. And so when he gets to chapter 5, he says, let me tell you how you need to think about one another. You need to think about the women in here that are around about your age and younger as your sisters in all purity. You really need to think about them as, this is my sister. And you don't have to go on to in Christ. You can if you want to. It's funny, Steve said growing up in his dad's church, everybody was their aunt and their uncle. And we kind of do understand that because we refer to each other in that way. And the older men, he said, I, re, I refer to as my granddad's. He said the oldest man that he went with, he got to go buy the engagement ring for Leslie. He called him Grandpa something. He said, he's not my grandpa. He's just an older man that went to church all my life and I loved him and I just referred to him that way. And he said, everybody in the church, I, I just call them that way. You know, if they were a little bit older than me, you know, I just call them Uncle whatever, Uncle Ted. He said it was our way of showing affection. It was our way of demonstrating that we're a family. And when Paul says, if you want to love the Lord, you'll understand that in the context of the church, we're brothers and sisters, we're aunts and uncles, we're mothers and fathers, we're granddads and grandmoms. And if you, you're not ready to be called granddad or grandmom, just say something. Go, whoa, 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 I'd rather be uncle, okay? So don't have your kids call me grandpa, please. Uncle Joey's fine but it communicates this idea that we're family. We're devoted to one another in brotherly love. And and look at verse 10. I've got two more. I appreciate your patience. I'll stop after I get through one, two more. Verse 10, I understood this better. Give preference to one another in honor. The ESV has it better. It uses the word outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. You know what that means? I just brag on y'all. And I really do as a church as a whole. Anytime anybody asks me, I I immediately start bragging. You remember, love doesn't brag on itself, but it brags. It's not arrogant because it's never talking about itself, but it will talk about others. And the only thing that it's got to do is just brag. We've got to learn to do that. Our culture... Loves humor. This is something that I really had to get over in the Northwest because they didn't understand my humor at all. And we say critical and negative things about each other all the time in jest to make somebody laugh. That's something we need to get over because we need to brag about each other. Why is it when we try to define somebody, we point to the one negative thing in their life? Why would you ever do that? You know... I love how Brad Coots brags on Addie. And by the way, I love it when y'all brag on your kids. Brad will send me a text. Got to brag on my daughter a minute. And he'll try to soften that, but I'm like, let go, Brad. Just let go and brag. And he'll talk about how amazing and wonderful, and she really is amazing at slinging a softball a whole lot faster than a little girl already able to throw a ball. I know I couldn't hit it, but Brad loves, loves to brag on Hattie. we got to get to the place where we do that for one another all the time. I don't care who you are. We've got to stop finding the negative things and the critical things and the questionable things when we talk about one another, And we've got to retrain ourselves. When we talk about one another, all we do is just... I can't think of anything bad to say about him. I mean, Matt's amazing, right? The guy always has a smile on his face. He's brought smiles into the body of this church because he's grinning all the time. And everything that he says, he, he always. I remember one. Of, I remember in VBS, I let the conversation get sideways about some old things that we experienced, and Matt quickly cleaned that up for me. Ah, no, 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 no. And I remember thinking, "Thank you, Lord. That's Matt. He's going to keep it positive." But I could go on about anyone in this room in that way. Going about Kim. I'm going about Ted. Every time I talk about, I talk about you coming to faith and how that happened. That's the story I want to tell when I talk about Ted, you know? That's God's kind of love. And you, you, you get that with your kids, most of them, right? But you do understand the concept because you're like, I, you might get it better with grandkids, Because I've never heard a grandparent say anything negative about a grandkid. Never in my life, right? If we want to model God's love in the context of this body, this is one way that our minds need to be transformed. I just can't say nothing but good things about so-and-so. Yeah, they go to church with me down there. They're awesome. I'm telling you, they're awesome. Last thing. Verse 13, and then I'll be able to finish my section and feel good about it this afternoon sitting on the couch. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. Y'all do that. Y'all do that. But these last two words, man, I got challenged on that. Practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. We all can improve on that. I listened to Steve talk about that this week. You know, his house is always unlocked. They live in the northwest, pretty close to Portland. Not the safest thing to do. It's always unlocked. And yeah, people have wandered in. He asks them what they want. They want to, they're hungry, they want something to drink. They walk on to the kitchen. People walk in their home and say, I need a place to stay. And he's literally done this. Some guy needed a place to stay. He doesn't know him from, you know, Adam's house cat. So when the kids were little, he and his wife and all the kids went in one bedroom, locked the door. He's not a dummy. But he said, here's your bedroom, here's your bed, here's your bathroom. Kitchen's downstairs, help yourself with the refrigerator. We can talk further in the morning. That's practicing hospitality. We open our doors to people we like. That's not God's love. That's because of... We've got to learn to practice hospitality, not because of, but who we are. It's just who I am. And you're going to have people to say, are, 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 have you lost your mind? Have you lost your mind? No, I'm just trying to obey the teachings of Scripture. It's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to practice hospitality. You get through the end of these things and you go, "Ooh, there's a lot I got to change. But that's okay. We're all in the same boat, but it starts right up here. In fact, when you get that feeling, have I lost my mind because of what I'm about to do, you need to replace that very quickly with the truth of Scripture and go, no, I haven't lost my mind at all. I'm trying to model the love of God. That's what I'm doing, and it's not crazy. I'm actually walking in obedience to Scripture. May God help us to have a love that is unhypocritical. Let's pray.